0: Hello, my name is Dave Graney. I am an underworld musician of many years standing.
1: I'm here to ask you to tune in to my fellow traveler, my comrade, Radio Caram.
0: It's the injury every athlete fears. Associated with a central surgery and a year on the sidelines, a ruptured anterior cruciate ligament has a devastating effect on those who suffer it. With post-operative re-rupture rates as high as one in three and just half of patients returning to their previous levels within two years, I'm on a mission to discover if there's a better way to recovery. And with the rise of women's sport unequally blighted by ACL injuries, I also want to know how we can prevent this often innocuous injury from occurring so frequently. Think I think I've found some solutions that whisper them around surgeons. You might be able to return to the activity you love quicker without going into with the knife. And hold on to your tin hats. We're now learning that a ruptured ACL can heal naturally. Join me as I speak to the professionals using groundbreaking research to lead the way in challenging the over dependency on surgeons plus hear from a raft of athletes who have already followed this alternative pathway the non-operative for the first interview of this series i wanted to provide something that most patients don't get access to somebody with specialized experience in treating acl injuries dr alex calderon is a physical therapist out of scottsdale arizona treating high school, college and professional athletes and working alongside athletic trainers and orthopedic surgeons. He provides both insightful and honest guidance for rehabbers via his Instagram account and speaks carefully yet honestly in our in-depth chat and I think that represents why he's such a great source of guidance because he clearly really cares about the topic and his patients. Initially, I was hoping he'd provide some great advice in the crucial part of ACL non-operative rehab, which is strength and conditioning. But as you're about to find out, he speaks really well to the broader challenges of just getting people to really consider this alternative approach. I know you're obviously you know, a big advocate for the importance of and power for strength and conditioning in your ACL recovery and you'd work with both, um, post-operative and non-operative patients, right?
1: Yeah. Um, but in the, I would say in the United States, it's definitely more skewed towards the operative pathway. Mm. Um, so my experience has been a lot more with the operative, operative route, Um, and so you still do have the people who want to, uh, do the rehab only and go non-op route. And so, uh, we do see those, but far and away it's still a lot more uh choosing surgery.
0: Yeah, well I'm coming to you here from uh, Australia where I believe we actually have the highest um operative rate um for ACL ruptures in the world. But I know America and the UK are, are very close behind. Are you starting to see more patients um I I get, get the sense, um, you know, from a patient's perspective that there is a there is a sense within the physio or the the um physical therapy sectors that there's a a growing movement here towards non-operative but is that reflected um well firstly do you sense that and secondly are you starting to see that in within the patients that more people are asking that question can i return
1: to sport or my previous activity without surgery yeah i am seeing definitely more more people at least asking that question of um you know is it possible um in fact I even, uh, asked on my Instagram stories, if, you know, do you think you can, um, return to sport without, uh, an ACL surgery and, uh, overwhelmingly it was, it like, yes. And I was actually kind of surprised by that. Um, c- cause it seems like it's still like pretty instilled in our, in our beliefs of just, you know, uh, if you tear your ACL, you have to have surgery. Cause you know, you always hear that in sports of, uh, an athlete, turn their ACL and immediately they have surgery, uh, either the next day or, or two. And so, um, it feels like that's, you know, been the belief, but, um, yeah, definitely starting to get more people at least asking that question of, Hey, do I actually have to have surgery? Um, you know, is it possible to, to rehab only and not necessarily have to go through the surgery?
0: Yeah. And it is interesting that, I think seeing people asking the question is one thing, right? But truly believing in this thing that really my experience speaks to is believing that you can and and deleting those question marks around the feasibility of actually returning to sport without an ACL. Um I I certainly kind of had those question marks throughout my rehab, whether what I was doing and people asked, you know, the question are oh, should you be doing this or that? so soon after your injury didn't you need surgery um um versus you know a- asking the question and and choosing that
1: pathway are two very different things right yeah so uh, yeah man this this actually it, it dives pretty deep mm. and uh that's why i was kind of wanted to make sure i can kind of clarify so i would say a lot of um like athlete gets hurt they go Immediately to the surgeon, and I feel like it's almost just assumed it's gonna you're gonna have surgery, and so then um, and a lot of times these athletes are just like okay yeah I have to have surgery, um, you know ACL's torn, so obviously it needs to be um, I need something else in there to to make my knee stable, hmm. and so this kind of goes to beliefs, uh, you know our beliefs are are pretty powerful. And, um, so if we believe that we need to have something in there to stabilize our knee, then, um, we tend to do better with surgery, right? Because, you know, you kind of believe deep down that, yes, I do need, I need to be fixed. Um, but then if you have someone else who is, who has kind of looked into it, probably looked up you know, at least googled it and said, "Dude, I have to have a surgery after an ACL tear," and they see um, probably some articles that pop up and says, "Oh, not necessarily." And now all of a sudden, they might have this more of a belief of like, "Hey, I actually don't need to have a surgery, or it is possible to get back to normal without surgery." And you might have this person who, um, just. You know wants to avoid surgery at all costs and so then they may choose hey if if i'm reading up that i can actually rehab and get back to my to my normal life without surgery that's a, that's the route i want to choose and so then they have the belief of of being kind of anti-surgery and so then they tend to have better results and so um I feel like, you know, your, your beliefs are definitely going to impact your outcome. And so I feel like if you take somebody who has, you know, they, they watch sports and they see their favorite player who gets hurt and has an ACL reconstruction, they get hurt. They feel like they need to have surgery. And then if all of a sudden you tell them, nope, we're going to try and do this without surgery, they are going to probably have it in the back of their mind that, oh, you know, I don't, I don't know if this can work. Um, this this may not be um this may not be feasible and even if they are doing good and if they are potentially getting close to getting back to their sport, it might always be in the back of their head of uh, well, you know, the I don't have an ACL there, so their their my knee isn't a hundred percent and they might not have as good of an outcome yeah that's the. does that make sense at
0: all uh, absolutely yeah yeah and it's completely speaks to to my experience of uh, i was probably somewhere in between the two was at times completely convinced that i was doing the right thing by not having surgery but then you step on a football pitch and your teammate says to you what are you doing here like you're going to be out for nine to twelve months and then you know sport everyone knows sporting environment if there's ever a time when the doubts are going to creep into your mind it's when you step across that line and and you have a moment to yourself, um, while you're waiting for the rest to blow the whistle or and and they can kind of subside as the adrenaline kicks in and you and you, you know, have a, a tackle that you get through and, and pass. But until those moments happen, um, yeah, those thoughts are gonna go through, which I, I I think is is part of the reason, you know, why we're having that com this conversation right now. Because um, we want to understand the feasibility and the the appropriateness of the narrative pathway and that um whether it is or not an absolute viable opportunity um and i know it took us a bit off, off script of what what i said we were going to talk about today <laughs> so we'll, we'll jump back into kind of um what we um kind of more <laughs> the, the planned conversation and um, mm. before my little okay. detour there but i did think it was a, a good one to to address because it's um you know saying that i think all listeners and saying that i i get a lot of questions about now is people that they ask that question and they're like but is it really mm-hmm. you know is it really possible but um so talking about kind of um patient presentation f- for you as a as a clinician how do, how would you from a blank canvas perspective um advise someone or review whether they're appropriate for the non-operative pathway versus this person really does need surgery
1: yeah so uh we we truly don't have a way of figuring out who is going to be successful without surgery and who needs surgery. Um, so this kind of goes back to the beliefs part of, um, you know, do they, um, do they feel like they need to have surgery? Um, and then it's almost like it's, and you know, maybe their surgeon has told them they need surgery, maybe their athletic trainer, Uh, maybe another physical therapist and maybe it's just kind of instilled them that they need surgery. And so a lot of times they will already, you know, they'll get it. And then by the time I see them in the clinic, that's already what's going on. But if I have someone who hasn't had the surgery yet, um, the only way you can figure out if you're going to be successful uh, without surgery is just to start, is just to try. And that time will tell. So um And you've always got surgery as you plan B right if you do
0: decide that the normative pathway is one that you'd like to pursue.
1: Yeah. So what I would suggest to to someone who let's just say they haven't had they torn their ACL, haven't had surgery, are kind of weighing the options themselves of should I get surgery or should I not? Um the best way to like I said is for time to tell. So I would say try at least twelve weeks of rehab and then see how your any responds. And if it's doing well, the swelling goes down, you're getting stronger, um, the knee is starting to feel a little bit more stable. then I would say you're good to go to keep keep going, keep trying and see how far you can get. Um, but if you go through 12 weeks and you're still having some instability, you're still getting some swelling, still having a lot of weakness. Um, then I would say maybe it's time to look into surgery. Yep. And is there any,
0: and the, probably the better way to frame this would be, are there any patients that you'd say, um, based on their presentation, that they're, it's not possible for them to go down the rehab alone? Uh, obviously talking here about the kind of collateral injuries, or maybe not collateral, but the additional injuries that often happen with
1: um, an ACL ruptures. Yeah, so even with some of the research is showing, as, uh, even with uh, some of the meniscus uh mcl tears is that um they're a lot of them are successful as well without the uh, without surgery Mm. and just going down the non-op route um and so that's why it's like well the best best thing is just to give it time and see see how far you can go um i mean i'm sure there's going to be some instances um you know someone still has like uh probably a lot of pain a lot of swelling. So maybe some catching in their knee, maybe their knee keeps getting stuck. Um but usually you can you, you can tell that within the first uh first few weeks of uh, them just not responding, not doing well at all. Um but I would say far away most most people I would say it's to at least give a rehab a shot first and see how far that can take you. Yeah. I know we covered
0: in the true or false and you believe that people can return to sport about an ACL. Um so why um yeah why more athletes aren't aren't um pursuing the non-optive pathway is that just because convention they've got to go through um they've got it through fitness tests they've got to go through um medicals when they sign a contract for example or is there any kind of more broader logic to an elite athlete not attempting to compete without an acl
1: yeah i think it's just the way the whole system is set up Mm. um and it you know Matthew gets injured, turns to ACL, goes to see the surgeon, surgeon tells you 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 need surgery. Mm. And so I would say that's probably the first part. And you know, if you tore your ACL and you went to the surgeon and he says, Oh, yeah, this is torn, but I think you can do well with rehab, so let's do the rehab route. And I feel like that changes everything because, you know, people look up to surgeons a lot. So yeah. um if the if the surgeon tells you, you know, you can You can do this without surgery let's try and do it without rehab i have i have a lot of confidence that you can get it done without surgery i feel like that changes the perspective of the patient um, a lot and so now when that patient comes into physical therapy they have a lot more confidence coming into going in and again it goes back to those beliefs now they believe that this can work and now they tend to see better outcomes yep But that's not usually the way it works. Usually, they go to the surgeon. The surgeon says, okay, we're going to have to do surgery. Yeah. Well, if you you go in next addresses and say, how do I look
0: better? They're going to say, I can cut your hair, right? Because that's what they know Yeah, works well, (laughs)
1: right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then the next thing is just, um, you know, we see it on TV. We, you know, like I said, uh, you can get... A uh, big time athlete, superstar athlete, who tears their ACL and has surgery the next day, and so then it's just like you know you see that on TV, and it's like oh well you know so and so had surgery, so I tore mine. I get I I'm gonna have to have surgery because that's what everybody does. That's what all the athletes do, and it's just kind of normalized in the culture. And I think it it could change if you see a superstar athlete tear their ACL, and maybe it's like. Right at the beginning of the season, uh, maybe preseason, before season starts. And they say, no, I'm going to do this without surgery. And they just go into rehab and then they're back by the end of the season or for playoffs and they're looking good and they're successful and never have surgery. I feel like that changes the discussion a lot. Yeah. There obviously has been examples of of athletes um,
0: returning to sport. Um, but I, I don't think they've really got the enough coverage or the right coverage potentially to um, yeah. really shift that. I know in the in the Premier League, from my knowledge, only one player has returned to playing the Premier League. Um, his name was Alou Diara and he returned um, just a, a few months. I think he was back in close behind closed doors training matches eight weeks after rupturing his ACL and did return to play in the I think the League Cup and then the, the Premier League um, I think that was from kind of August till December, January he was back um, but no uh, it blew my mind when I kind of read back onto it, now I've kind of covered this subject quite a lot, it's how little coverage and there was no interviews with him or the manager, I don't know whether the club at the time West Ham had just said like Knowing, no, we're not going to speak to the media at all about this, but that was a significant shift and should have been, you know, really something that was looked into and understood better the pros and cons of, of what he'd done. Um, and his career was kind of petering out, um, at that club at the time anyway, so I think it wasn't really, oh, he's in and out of the team, no one really cared to ask what was happening there. But um for me they're the they're the journeys that we need to learn more about. I actually one of my aspirations is to is to find Alo Diara and get him on this podcast to interview him about his experience, that pathway, um why. No one was asking. I'm not sure he's been asked questions about it, um, in a pub or or a, on a training pitch. But no one was really the media did not get into that one. And uh, I know there's been a lot of other examples where um elite athletes, particularly there was a rugby player that returned, um made his debut for the Waratahs in in Australia just um just weeks after rupturing his ACL, um and had a um MRI scan twelve months later and the the ACL had actually fully healed. Um these stories just aren't being told, are they, or investigated? And they're they're pretty rare, but when they are we're not really, I, I don't know about from your experience, whether you do studies in your training around these athletes, um, or whether there's really any documentation out there of what exactly has occurred. Uh,
1: yeah, first of all, yeah, I completely agree with you, right? It's like these type of athletes who are, who are successful, don't get the, don't get the coverage and attention, uh, that it deserves. Cause it's, it's a big deal. And, um, and I feel like that is part of the cultural change changes of the discussion around um if if acl reconstruction is completely necessary um but yeah as far as like research goes um a lot of the research has been done more around um what track what type of graphs are best and from the physical therapy standpoint kind of you know our treatment methods, rehab methods for returning athletes to sport uh, successfully, and that's where the re- where most of the research has been done. Uh, but just within the last few years, now they're looking at it as far as comparing um, the whole post uh, non off versus the operative pathway, and that's where they're starting to see that um, a lot of the outcomes are looking very similar. And so um you're starting to see this uh kind of snowball and gain some steam here as far as uh whether what, what the future research is gonna start looking at. Um and that's and I see I, I, groundbreaking
0: research, right. The, um, we had the the Canon trial ten year follow up that said there was no difference between um outcomes for for patients, surgery versus non surgery, which which is pretty like ground shifting evidence right but there's no real major always yeah. around that yeah
1: it's definitely yeah it's, it's a it's it, a it's a big deal that that study there was a big deal and there's a couple others that i feel like that study is starting to help um change that conversation and kind of change the direction of of studies and what we should be looking at instead of just what graft is working best and so yeah, that that study is doing is doing a lot to to change that conversation, um, at least in the medical field. Hmm. There's some others that are coming out, and I think it takes like seventeen years or something before things change. Um, when research, you know, when you get like a study that says, "Hey, this is we're doing it wrong," I think said it takes like close to seventeen years for things to change. Yeah, that's, um, but I think like.
0: But yeah, and it shouldn't be that way in this day and age, they should it like we everything's so instant. He's talking about evidence, like,
1: yeah, yeah. And I think you kind of talked about earlier, right? About incentives, Hmm. not being in the right spot, right? Because, yeah, I get paid more. The more you come in, every, every appointment you come into, I get paid more. So then I'm incentivized to have someone come in more often same thing with surgery the more surgery they do the more they get paid and so um the the incentives aren't there and i think people just are going to do what they're incentivized to do whether that's consciously or subconsciously and um yeah so i I feel like hopefully with like you said things with like the podcast social media i think that could definitely
0: speed things up and should bleed through to the conversations you're having with patients, right? Like you, you said, it's very difficult to shift someone based on their kind of um, pre-established beliefs. But if we have this the sort of evidence that we can present to to people, I mean, that's one thing that I always go back to is, when I'm in that moment of kind of doubt, is thinking, no, I know that based on this evidence that I can perform it on my knee isn't just going to give way to me. Um, again, one of, one of the best things that I had was I... <clears throat> when i played football um maybe 10 years ago one of my um, teammates had a acl deficient knee and he'd played for 12 years um, i spoke to master i when i started to go down the the non operative pathway spoke to him and he said he'd played for 12 years without an acl in his in, in one of his knees and he had no problems with that he actually ended up having surgery um, because we worked together as well and we got, um, private health cover as part of our, um, as part of our employment package. And he started to have a little bit of a in his knee and was just like, oh, well, I never had surgery. Maybe it's, you know, the, the, the assumption, um, is that you should have surgery and it's better to have an ACL. And, um, interestingly he had that surgery and he said, he's actually, he's had more problems with his knees since surgery than, than before um he had the surgery. Um so interesting to show you, even someone that's got twelve years of evidence that you can operate and mm-hmm. function out on ACL um is still vulnerable to to the 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 general consensus that a uh, ACL is is critical. Um we want to talk about um and and I guess the point here is is surfacing the unknown around the non-operative pathway. Could you talk listeners through a bit of the the difference between if you're going to go down the pathway of non-operative versus um having surgery and the the post
1: operative care that you and the program you put a patient on to? Yeah, as far as the basic principles of what I'm trying to get done um as a physical therapist is relatively the same. Um, still trying to restore their knee range of motion, still trying to get swelling under control, get the pain under control, uh, restore their quadriceps strength, restore the hamstring strength, and then, uh, restore power and agility. And, um, so the basics of what I'm trying to get done is, uh, is relatively the same. The only big difference is that the timelines can move up, um, because we don't have to recover from the surgery so there's nothing to really uh, protect so uh, you know after surgery you usually have to deal with inflammation swelling uh, potentially some post-operative pain you have to allow the graft to heal if there's a meniscus repair you have to allow that to heal Uh, so a lot of protocols don't allow for weight-bearing for several weeks and so that kind of slows down our timeline. And uh, so as the non-op route, um, there's nothing to protect. And so we kind of just go at, um, at your body's pace and what your body allows to do. Um, but we're still going through the same phases. It's just that we can go a little bit faster. Um, then as far as the timelines go, um, in my experience, that's a little tough to say uh um, yeah this is the the million dollar question I guess
0: that every annoying patient um like myself when i when i when I spoke to you was how quickly can I go back to playing sport non operatively yeah,
1: in my experience, I have not seen a consistent time frame um I've had uh an American football player high school football player who got hurt during uh, workouts in the off season and um it was a senior year so you wanted to make sure that he was gonna be able to get back and play. He didn't really want to do surgery. And so we did rehab and he was back playing and he was back practicing at least for uh, after the at the two month mark. Wow. And then I've had uh, I've had another kid who um another high school um well, soccer player who same thing he was trying to get back um he got hurt right before the season started and tried to get back for at least for playoffs and it took him about four months to be able to get back to running and cutting and jumping and i've had others who taking taken up to six months seven months as well mm. and so that time frame, it's it's tough for me to really give uh, you know a hard black and white answer of hey, this is where I expect you to be at you know month two, month three, month four because um, we kind of just go at what at your body's pace at what your body is allowing us to do.
0: Yep. <clears throat> so if the if the you know the swelling is more significant and takes longer to subside, you probably wouldn't push them into the first stage of that real strength conditioning work right because if your body's reacting to that negatively then it's going to be tough for that patient to really do some good quality work guessing and, and those kind of knock on effects right is about from my understanding all about clearing those kind of gateways so what are you ready to do next right so you, once that swelling is gone the objective is to get that strength in the injured knee um, back up and I guess with muscle wastage would be one of the big barriers right in terms of that return because ultimately for non-operative rate, like you say you don't have an acl to protect so it's about getting that the injured knee strong and functional again to be able to kind of um counteract the the absence of an acl so is that the the key dependency the kind of structural integrity that you're working with from the baseline does that
1: will that often define um the outcome Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. So, um, you know, it's kind of interesting just in, in physical therapy, we're finding that, um, our bodies are actually pretty good at adapting to, um, to having tears, injuries. Um, so we're finding out, you know, that our, that, you know, people can have, um, you know, disc bulges, they can have torn rotator cuffs, they can have torn labrums and go through rehab and get back to functioning just fine. And then now it seems like we're starting to find that uh, people can have torn ACLs and get back to having a strong and stable knee. And so as far as the physical therapy point of it, yeah, we are just trying to um, get the quad, especially the quad because the quad starts off so weak, but definitely trying to just restore the quad, hamstrings, calf, hip, and restore everything so that uh, at least all the muscles can provide that stability to the knee, yeah, Because I guess that that's probably
0: the the question that a lot of people will ask well, this is a cruciate ligament, the name of it sounds very serious right <laughs> um how how exactly um I know this this probably is an easy question to answer um but um, how does the knee if you you're doing the effective rehab and the strength work, how does the knee compensate without an ACL? Um, is it simply the fact that these muscles that you're building and strengthening are doing the work that it it would do?
1: You know, I I don't know that we know that answer. Yeah, and so um, yeah, that would be my hypothesis is just that uh, yeah, all the muscles and even like the ligaments and tendons that are running right through the knee mm. are all kind of just compensating for that that torn ACL. Because um, like I mentioned before, we have, uh, you know, someone can come in with a rotator cuff tear mm. and we can rehab them. And essentially what happens is that uh, that rotator cuff might be, the tendon might be torn, but all the other muscles around learn how to adapt for that. And they can still get back to, you know, raising their arm, lifting things up, and going back to uh, being normal with a strong shoulder. And almost like it, nothing happened. And so it seems like that's what's going on in the knee, is that we're probably getting it, you know, all the muscles strong, and our knee is learning how to adapt and overcome for that torn ACL.
0: Yes, uh, ultimately you want your muscles doing the work and taking the strain versus ligaments, tendons. Um, right, so that's why we make ourselves strong, go to the gym in from the first place. Um, so they're the ones that are the functioning, firing muscles. And it's often, from my experience anyway, um, how often do you use your ACL, for, for example from my experience <laughs> i've only heard about it twice and when it both times when it snapped so when but both in the, both those instances i had quad injuries that had occurred either from a previous recent injury that i, I had real t- quad tightness um from twisting money um a week earlier and then i returned to play quad was still feeling quite tight and then i ruptured my um ligament um and in the previous time i'd also had a, a quad injury just from running fatigue i was training for a half marathon at the time and then i had a football match mm-hmm. and I went into the football match and that quad was definitely feeling weak and not great and then i twisted on it and the acl popped um so yeah make your muscles mm-hmm. strong um don't play on injuries particularly quad injuries um, from my experience um but yeah. get, getting into the the exercise and the, the training bit which is obviously where you really specialize and do a f- phenomenal job of kind of sharing those practices on um on your instagram account what um what are what are those key exercises i know there's a huge range and, and varying that range and, and exposing your knee to different types of exercises and and um dynamic challenges is the key but um w- what are the kind of core exercises that you'd have a patient focusing on the kind of ones that You want to make sure every single kind of um, training session.
1: Yeah, so I would say that the leg extension or the knee extension machine is the best way to isolate the quadriceps muscle. Um, Single leg?
0: Do you you have focusing on that? Because I know a lot of people use that that machine, double-legged. Does it matter too much?
1: Yeah, that's a... No, that's a big, that's a, that's a good, uh, a big mistake. I see a lot. Um, you know, essentially when someone, um, injures their ACL, you know, their quadricep is so weak. And so, um, as far as that knee extension goes, the best thing to do is to do a single leg, because if you're doing a double leg, you're just going to compensate with that stronger knee. Yeah. And so then the, you don't get all the work done. And so, um just the way the machine is set up that's going to be the best way to isolate that quadriceps and um essentially uh, i mean to get back to like the bigger picture is that um we uh, let's see we do want to isolate the quad and so that machine is the best way to do it and then um the the problem that we've had is that that machine has got such a bad rap over the years of saying hey this is what this machine causes pain and it ruins our knees and so then especially in rehab we have kind of avoided it for a long time and i think that has kind of set us back as far as being able to progress someone back to um uh, back to getting to sport and not re tearing their acl or re injuring their knee and so I would say that is going to probably be the number one exercise to do. And it's easy to see, you know, if you're doing a single leg, it's very easy to see if you have a deficit or not. Yeah. And so um, most of the time when uh, w- when someone comes into the clinic and they had an ACL tear or they had a surgery and they've, uh, they're coming in because they're still having knee problems and maybe they rehabbed it you know, somewhere else or rehabbed it a couple of years ago, but still have a lot of knee issues. First thing I do is have them jump on that machine and just see what weight they can push with it. And most of the time they haven't been using that machine. And so then to their surprise, there's a big deficit a big difference in the weight that they can push, you know, in their in their injured leg versus the non injured leg. And so most of the time when we can get that, um, just, you know, just close to equal, you'll see that a lot of the knee problems start to go away. Right, that simple. Music to the ears, I imagine, most yeah. listeners. Because
0: this is a very complex and broad conversation we're having, but quite simply, get on the leg extension, single leg, and try and build that injured leg up to the strength of your non-injured leg. But do not also stop working the non-injured leg because that's going to be your benchmark and if that muscle isn't as strong as it should be or was because you've not been using it then you're cheating yourself so basically go to town on both your quads until they're both optimum strength right and keep building them up that's that would be the uh, and that was certainly the cornerstone of what i did in my rehab was to get make sure my left quad was fully firing again but also not cheating and and let my right one off so it's kind of Gradually both should be improving, but your injured leg's gonna improve way quicker um as you're becoming yeah. that deficit and you'll eventually get back to the point where they're they're pretty much going head to head. I sounds really sad, but mm-hmm. um during my rehab I kind of <laughs> I didn't have anyone else to compete with. So I just <laughs> the competition in, in the gym was my left leg versus my right leg, right? My right leg's still oh, that's- stay stronger and and keep ahead and be the and be the the benchmark um and i i because I, i'd had op- an operation on my right leg i knew the importance of keeping that leg strong as well so i had an incentive um to keep and use that as an opportunity to really strengthen my right leg um but at the same time left leg right you gotta you gotta catch up and then make up that ground and eventually yeah i got back to both legs being Pretty much the same strength for now. Everything I do in the gym is still single leg predominantly, but at exactly the mm-hmm. same weight across the two. So I'm trying to PB one legged, but uh, on the same across both legs. Which, which for me was that was the point where I was like, right, okay, now I'm ready to get into the the more advanced stuff of of the hopping and the running and stuff. But until you're at that point where you're you've got that true. Quality between your legs i think you're always vulnerable going back into anything because then you're going to compensate when you do your activity and then you're exposing um the other side of the body to a bit more strain as well um sorry yeah. you're the you're the pt here not not, <laughs> not not me so correct me if i'm wrong in any of that um but it, the other exercises the uh, single leg press was the other the main one that i focused on a lot mm-hmm. and then transferring that into single leg squats um hate them so much if leg extension was quite a nice fulfilling simple easy exercise to do that isolates one muscle um single leg press and um single leg squats aren't that and they are tough
1: yeah i was gonna say that's you know i think you, you hit the nail on the head there as far as uh competing with your other leg and trying to um push that that, that non-injured leg as hard as you can because you know if you're taking a couple months off a few months off of uh off of your training then that non-injured leg is going to get deconditioned and so you want that injured leg to catch up to a conditioned non-injured leg mm. instead of a deconditioned uh like um so like if you're doing that, that leg extension machine and done non injured leg, that weight should be going up too. And yep. so it should be getting stronger. And then it feels like um it feels like it's it's you're you're even having to work even harder to get it to catch up. But that's exactly what we want. Um and then yeah, definitely I like to like press the locks. Um actually same thing. Same same type of concept is that um, you can change the weights, and so we really want to challenge that um, that injured leg. And if you do both legs both legs at the same time, again, you're going to compensate, and by pushing more with the non-injured leg, so uh, you want to use the um, the injured leg individually and expose that weakness and um, and so that's the whole the whole purpose of doing that that single leg. Hmm. Um, the only the only issue I have with the with the squat um, and even a single leg squat too. So, if let's just say you're going to do a barbell uh, back squat, and you squat down, and a lot of times you might shift off of that that weaker leg, and a lot. Of, and then the other shift that you do is you start hinging forward at your hips and instead of bending the knees because you don't have the quad strength necessarily. Yeah. And so, what you're actually starting to do is uh, teach you, you're starting to teach your body how to compensate for that weak quad. And so, even though you may be going low, you're, you're going low because you're hinging at your hips and you're leaning your chest forward right? instead of squatting from the uh, bending down from the knees and so then you kind of just start training that and so um, the big cues I usually tell people is um, keeping their keeping their chest up during the especially during a single leg squat and so because um, the whole the whole purpose of, of these exercises is to expose the quad and to expose that weakness instead of learning to hide it yep
0: and do you do that do you recommend doing that on a wedge as well i don't know how many people are familiar with that but i always struggled probably with the getting the same depth in my squats and also to isolate it more to the the knee and the the quad area um and i my physio made me do them on a on a wedge and i found i could get a lot lower and i definitely felt it a lot through the the knee i actually found it easier to do a single leg um squats on the the wedge even though the The idea that it was, it was isolating the weakness, um, is that one that
1: you'd we'd recommend? Yeah, definitely. I use the use a wedge under the heel a lot, um, just because it kind of it takes your calf out of the equation. Because as you squat down, your calf actually helps control your knee, and so it helps takes take the calf out of it. So then you have to use your quadriceps more to control your body coming down as you're as you're squatting and so it allows you to go deeper like you just said but your quad mm-hmm. does have to work more to to accomplish that yeah um heaps of little tips we
0: won't go through every single exercise you can do because we'd be here a while but um your instagram account <laughs> is a phenomenal one for for finding out about those different exercises for the different stages of, of your rehab because that's obviously really important that you're only doing the right activity at the right stage of your rehab to not um overexpose your knee to to injury. Um, but I wanted to yep. fast forward a bit to you know, how this plays out in how you test the readiness of um, someone returning to their previous level activity. I was going to say athlete, but I definitely want this to, to be for anyone that, you know, really the safe return to their activity. Um, what does the, the actual return to sport testing look like for you before you're willing to sign someone off to go back to that full contact training
1: yeah so um definitely in today's age we're using a lot of data metrics to to guide our decision and um so it's never me just looking at the patient and saying yeah you look good looks like you can run looks like you can jump looks like you can do some ladder drills um so if we decide to hold an athlete uh yeah if we decide to hold that athlete out it's because they haven't passed their test yet and they haven't checked those boxes, not because it's just my opinion. And so that's where we're big on trying to use data metrics for that. So um, the first things we always look at and make sure we check off the boxes is uh, making sure their joint has calmed down. So make sure they have their, their full range of motion, no swelling, no pain. And that's with no swelling, no pain after jumping, running, cutting doing those types of drills um and then in the clinic i use a dynamometer to measure their quad and hamstring strength um it's the one of the most accurate ways to uh, put a number on on that strength uh we also look at various types of hop tests, uh single leg hop tests, and so it might be a single leg vertical jump so we're looking at height and then uh then we're like, yeah, like a single leg hop, like a forward hop, almost like a broad jump, measuring that length and making sure that it is about 90% of the non-injured leg. And then uh, a triple hop. So essentially you stand on one foot, hop forward three times, stick the landing, and then compare that left and right and making sure that's about 90% of the non-injured leg. And then we also look at the quality of the movement so making sure they're not compensating during any of these jumps or cutting and uh we also look at some agility tests such as the 505 test the 505 test is essentially it's an agility test Mm. and essentially you're going to sprint forward um sprint forward about 15 meters you're going to come up to a line at the end and you're going to plant off of one of your feet and turn and sprint back to where you just came from Mm. and we're looking at at the time that you can do that and we're comparing it cutting off of your right foot and left foot and seeing if there's a big difference right yeah
0: and that's probably gonna be a psychological difference right like how willing you are to commit your your leg to that movement versus tendency to protect it
1: which is yeah and that's and that's kind of when we look at some of the quality of the movement. And so I usually have people do a lot of different types of agility drills and yeah, I can, you can see right away, um, you know, how, how confident they are planning through that foot yep. and planning through that knee and cutting off of it. And, uh, but usually, you know, after we, d- we've done that for several weeks, um, that, that starts to go away. You can see that they've, um they're a lot more confident and a lot more efficient with those cuts
0: yep um obviously prevention is uh is better than the the cure um if we're going to put you and the surgeons out of work uh, by by stopping <laughs> these injuries from happening in the the first place um what what would you advise um you know someone that's listening that hasn't had an ACL injury yet or yeah there, there are any sort of exercises you'd recommend them doing to better protect their body from
1: um, being susceptible to an ACL injury. Yeah, so there's been a lot of research that has looked at various types of programs to help reduce the chance of tearing your ACL. Um, and a lot of them work really well. Uh, but the one I generally recommend is the FIFA 11 Plus. Mm. Um, and that one has shown just to reduce ACL tears by just over fifty percent. And so. Uh, consists of various running strength plyometric and balance exercises it uh, doesn't require any equipment and you can run through it before every practice before every game and it's actually easy to implement with the team as well and mm. so that's kind of my go-to is that FIFA 11 plus
0: and are there any um if we are talking about being in the gym i mean i do, I do quite a few i do reverse sled pull um so this metal really what the the lower quads um also, kind of the practicing your jumping landing as as well. Um, do that single leg off a off a height. Are there exercises you you'd encourage people to implement into kind of their, their gym routine independently?
1: Yeah, that's one of the tough things is because like these programs, they have various types of exercises, mm. and and it it kind of just throws everything at you. Yeah. And one thing we definitely find is that. Just participating in a strength training program has been uh, seems like it's protective of of our joints, and so I think that would be. And it's not necessarily that you have to have a certain amount of strength, right? It's not like you have to say, "Hey, I have to be able to squat two hundred fifty pounds," or um, you know, be able to do a leg extension with you know X amount of weight. It's just the fact that you're you're in the gym, you're pushing weight, and you're challenging yourself, seems to have a protective component to it. And so I think that's where it's been huge uh, lately, especially uh, with like a, with like the younger population and women especially, uh, kind of breaking through that barrier of it being normal to be in the gym and be lifting weights. And it seems like that um, to me that's going to be huge as far as um, being able to reduce that chance of of re injuring that knee or re tearing that ACL. Um, It was just, you know, being in the gym and going through um, a kind of a more formalized resistance training program, Mm -hmm. not just squats. <laughs>
0: is is the jam yeah, I from you is uh don't just yeah. build up your, your glutes and your your hamstrings. Um, those quads need to be super strong as as well. I guess that's that's for me. That's an important one is like, like that that balance of strength. So not just building certain areas because then the other areas aren't going to be able to handle that additional load and explosivity through the body. Like I'm I'm a believer that one of the maybe areas of um naivety we've we've had in the in our physical development um over recent years is we're training to accelerate really effectively so deadlift squats we're powerful but we're not training to decelerate so when our bodies go to plant and pivot there's suddenly a hell of a lot of load just fired through them that maybe wasn't there particularly when we're wearing um you know studs on a hard ground we're really, for me, that's how we're exposing our bodies to to more risk than maybe we were ten, twenty, thirty years ago when um when we all weren't quite so powerful and explosive. Um, and you, you, I guess you'd see that probably, you know, in uh, American football, you've got these huge athletes, and their ligaments don't get stronger, do they? So, um, the work that you do in the gym has also got to be centered around helping your body handle with handle what you're building.
1: Yeah, and I think that's you mentioned it earlier. It's just that balance of kind of making sure your um your program is comprehensive and kind of including everything. And so um, you know, not just the strength training, you know, it is strength training but also working on eccentrics so that you can be able to put on that be able to put on those brakes like you're mentioning earlier. If you're someone who does a ton of strength training and is not including plyometrics, then you probably want to be including plyometrics in your program, yep. and vice versa. If you're not, if you're doing a lot of you know just agility field work but not in the gym as much, you probably want to be in the gym more often. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. What's the what's the number one misconception out there about
0: ACL injuries right now for you? Yeah,
1: yeah. I would say the number one misconception is that it seems like a lot of people believe the ACL reconstruction is a quick fix and it it truly isn't. Um, I think a lot of patients, they, they have surgery and then they don't know what to expect afterwards. And then when I see them in the clinic, they're kind of shocked at, uh, how much they cannot use that leg. And so then that's why I seen, I see, it seems like a lot of them, uh, have a lot of worry and anxiety around it and um, I think a lot of people just kind of go into the surgery and think okay then I'll have surgery and then I'm gonna recover and everything's gonna be fine but it it truly is a grind both mentally and physically Mm -hmm. and uh, honestly if you go ask any athlete who has had uh, rehab after an ACL reconstruction they'll tell you it's one of the hardest things they've had to do and in fact one of my uh one of my patients just the other day was telling me how uh so he's still in a brace he had surgery he's still in a brace and he went out to a bar and um the guy came up to him and bought him a beer and just said hey I, I see that uh you you have your brace on that you had an acl reconstruction is what i'm guessing and he tells him yeah he goes here i'm gonna buy you a beer because i know it's, it's not easy and uh so he says, you know, it kind of felt like uh, almost like a little club, essentially, mm. when, when he was walking around that race, you know, people telling him like, yeah, you know, I, I, I was there, man. I went through the same thing, man. It's it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a bit of a, like, yeah, one of the things I was surprised to hear. oh, you're going to walk out of um,
0: the hospital that day. And you're thinking, oh, right. Okay. You know, I start my journey there. And then you lay in bed and you have to do knee bends and straighten your knee and all the tedious stuff that... Man, that, that stuff is, um, you know, mentally, for me, was mentally more challenging than, than physically. And I definitely encourage people yeah. to seek out, um, firstly, the community. I know there's there's one on Facebook for um, non-operative, but um, if you're going operative, seek out a community as, as well of people that have been through that even try and fight I, I think there should be a buddy scheme for when you're going through it because it's mm-hmm. you know for most people 12 months of something that they're experiencing but a lot of people struggle to empathize with as well i think like if someone breaks their arm everyone wants to sign the the cast and and it's this whole big thing right um mm-hmm. but, but acl injury is is it's quite difficult to find people around you that maybe understand exactly how challenging that is because it's not that you know you didn't get hit by a car you're not you haven't got any kind of physical um you'll get a little scar on your knee and you get some swelling but typically people won't recognize it as this big trauma that you're experiencing but for those athletes going through it such a long time to be away from something that was a huge part of your identity and a huge part of your joy in life um is hugely challenging and i think also one of the things we need to advance the conversation is that um know mental health support that people um should feel like they um can get if they have a have a bad injury um and definitely you know another thing i'd love to change here uh, that we have a lot in our sporting culture is that idea that um speaking about your mental challenges um during a rehab process Shouldn't be a taboo thing. It's it's completely normal to feel like crap when you when you've had an injury like this, particularly around ACL. Um, and that that's another reason why I really wanted to to get the um non-optive conversation happening more because it is better on your brain. Like it's easier to go through. You know what you've talked about in terms of getting into that. Um, you know more interesting and and gym focused activity quicker with the non-optive pathway is easier to manage. I certainly enjoyed it more than than sitting around and bending my knee for for, for weeks on end until i could actually <laughs> expose my my new little tendon acl to um any sort of um robust rehab so um yeah, yep. so, certainly parts um that we that we need to kind of yeah we need to progress past
1: have a lot of those areas yeah. of ignorance I think those those communities, you know, especially like Facebook, they're huge. Um, I think that's, you know, you just need, I feel like a lot of people just need that support because we you don't have, we when you're not around anyone else who's gone through it, it, it feels like you're alone. Mm. And, you know, even in like our clinic, uh, in our um, rehab clinic, I might have someone who is coming in, um, you know, right after surgery, day one or i would say that's more like day you know usually within that next week um and then there's maybe someone else walking around the clinic who's also doing their rehab at the same time who's maybe week seven Mm. and so then you know usually then someone then that person usually comes over you know introduces themselves you know says hey man i'm i was right where you were not too long ago and uh you know it'll get better and i feel like that I see those interactions happen and I can just almost see this, this weight being lifted off that person's shoulder Yep. and just seeing that, that support that that they feel. And so, um, and that's where I feel like a lot of these Facebook communities definitely help is you, you, you jump in there and you don't even have to post anything. You just start reading through and you'll see that other people have the same fears and, the same questions you do and i feel like that that can be relieving because a lot of times people you know their knees swollen that's red maybe it's throbbing it's aching maybe they're not progressing like they are and people will mentally just start going down this rabbit hole of well there must be something wrong with me maybe there's something wrong with the surgery you know, maybe I'm not going to get back to playing the sports or taking care of my kids like I thought I was. Was this a mistake? And then you have all these negative questions going through their mind. And a lot of times you just need that reassurance that, hey, no, this is normal. Um, everybody goes through this or this isn't an uncommon. And you're right where, you're, where you need to be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure everyone's ACL recovery journey has had a, a step backwards along along the way and um we're definitely it's impossible to be perfect through um the entire period because it's a long one maybe a bit of a controversial one here it's not controversial in my mind but it's (laughs) controversial in in what's actually applied um when a patient first gets their acl surgery diagnosis so typically they'll see a doctor who will read out their mri report um who should they be referred to to see first I guess there's there's probably two options there, um, either an orthopedic
1: surgeon or a, a physio slash um, physical therapist. Yeah. Um, so ideally, I well, yeah ideally it would be great if they came to physical therapy first. Uh, that way we can get right to work, start restoring uh, their their motion, start controlling the swelling, controlling the pain. Um, but then I would say soon after it'd be great if they could just get in with an orthopedic surgeon for a consult. Um, and to me, this kind of goes back to those beliefs, right? And if the surgeon can say, tell them, hey, you're doing things right, let's keep going non-operative routes, let's just try and rehab this thing and get you back there as soon as possible, I think you can do it. Mm, I, I'm, not, I'm just sure. trying to... I'm,
0: I'm liking my my fear. <laughs> that was the, Um mm. they go to the the surgeon and they say exactly the opposite no you need to have surgery um i I don't i don't mean to be you know negative towards the the surgical industry but um that would always be my concern that how what percentage really of surgeons out there are thinking that the noreptu is a firstly valid and secondly the i'm not going to say in their interest but in the um what they've kind of being prescribed from a you know organizational perspective probably um what they're prescribed to, t- to tell a patient
1: yeah and and that's what that's what i was saying this is in an ideal world this is how it worked mm. and and uh and like i said it kind of just goes back to those beliefs of yeah, yeah you know hey the, the surgeon thinks i can do it my pt thinks i can do it so let's do it and yeah those those that confidence that that your team has has in you is is gonna do uh do wonders for your outcome. Yeah. And so but yeah, it, it, I think that that is the hard part is finding a surgeon who does believe um who is willing and you know does believe that you can do it without uh ACL reconstruction. Yeah. Um so far generally I I don't I haven't seen that as being the consensus yet. But um, and then I don't at least, you know, I know the way, the way it works here in the United States. If you go to a surgeon and, and you have it set that you don't want to do surgery, but Hey, you just want a con- consultation. You just want them to look at your knee, make sure there's nothing else going on. And they say, well, you need surgery and you don't think you want to do surgery or you don't believe you, need, you want to do surgery like so you have that choice that so you don't have to do the surgery. And mm-hmm. if you want another opinion, you can go and ask some, you can go talk to another surgeon and get another opinion. Yeah. And see what they think. And so um just because, you know, you're at one orthopedic surgeon doesn't mean you have to do what he or she tells you. Yeah. And especially if that's not what you believe. And the good thing, I guess, you can,
0: you can do your research before, find someone that, you know, is recognised in um, having a bit more of a balanced perspective, and the the way I look at it is, there's no one out there that's suggesting non-operative for any kind of bias or need themselves like you as a as a physical therapist. You're you're getting more money out of a patient who has surgery right and and takes twelve months to get back to their sport versus an annoying person like me who might return to sport in four months and then you have to sign me off and so. Uh, what well, I'm saying I'm now, I'm not suggesting that people aren't being objective with suggesting surgery, but there's no reason to be cynical around someone that's not suggesting surgery because they there's, there's no real um, stake in it for them to to pushing a certain agenda that way. So I think people, yeah, be open to that, that conversation. I think it's a really important thing that we should be having more balanced conversations and seeing both sides because there is still a little bit of um, learning for everyone to be doing around the non just pathway. And the people that are more educated, and more open to those ideas are probably the more progressive and more patient centric um, clinicians for you to see. So I, I definitely would encourage people to, to go, su- to go see someone that can, can give you both sides of the, both sides of the argument. Um, a third side of the argument, Alex is, um, is around the actual healing. Um, have you have have you been seeing much evidence of, of ACL's healing? There's been a lot of talk around um you know, the bracing protocol protocol and um also kind of increasing blood supply to the to the area. Um are you seeing much from from patients around that, I guess. It's tough, isn't it? Because you're not having we're not having follow up MRI scans, right?
1: Yeah. So um I'd say that's still uh, well. There is more. There is some research coming out about that, and that's still relatively new. And I would say, still pretty groundbreaking. Still mm. pretty cool, in my opinion. Um, that we are starting to see some evidence of that that the ACL can heal. You know, we initially thought ACL couldn't heal because it didn't have a great blood supply, but now we're seeing that maybe it does have a better blood supply than we thought, and we are seeing. Uh, evidence of those ruptures healing um, when they do follow up MRIs. Um, so it's still relatively new, and um, it'll be. It's going to be kind of interesting to see, you know, what sort, what the follow ups st- are, what the follow up studies are showing, and kind of where this this leads us. Mm. Um. Sorry. Sorry. Oh no. Yeah. You can go ahead.
0: I was going to say, based based on your point there, right, and the 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 evidence really is dispelling um, the preconceived idea that an ACL cannot heal, right? And if that's the case, that should really shift the way that ACL injuries are managed non-operatively, right? In terms of, you should be able to get a follow-up MRI after a certain round of um, rehab. Yeah,
1: um, I don't know. I don't know that you necessarily need a Follow up MRI. I think the the biggest thing would just be how functionally how stable is your knee. Mm Are you are you are you back? Like if you if you play, you know whatever sport you play, if you are back playing it and you feel like you are back to one hundred percent and you are good to go, I don't necessarily know that you need another MRI to tell you yes or no. Yeah, Um, and I'd say the the let's say the opposite happens and you go get an MRI and it shows that hey there is some evidence that your ACL is healing but you still feel like your knee is very unstable and you're not you can't play you're still not able to play your sport then I don't necessarily know that I would say well then don't do surgery because your ACL is healed Um, because then right now they're still looking at there's different degrees of um that acl healing and um so i kind of died there's a little bit more to dive into the weeds there as far as the degree of healing and so um i would i i personally would base it more off function yeah are you back to doing the activities you want to do yes or no and you know you've done the rehab are you back to doing the activities you want to do yes or no and if that's a yes then okay, you're good to go. If it's a no, okay, maybe we, I mean, we could do that the follow-up MRI, but uh, more likely, if you've been doing rehab and you're still not good, then maybe we should just do surgery. Yeah, I think, to me, the, the, the MRI is more just telling us, hey, we didn't, the ACL is doing something, and we didn't expect that, and now it's just shining that light of, hey, it looks like it is starting to heal. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, so leave that behind the scenes to the, to the researchers and the people that will make those decisions eventually, but for, uh, for a patient, listen to your body, see how functional your knee is and be guided by that right, which is, which is exactly what, what I've done and is the easiest thing to do if you're constantly second guessing mm, is my ACL in there somewhere healing itself um, well that's probably not going to make a yeah. great mind frame um, for your recovery <laughs>
1: yeah and because like let's just say i mean you are i mean let's just say you go back and you're playing your sport and you feel you're 100 percent and you do that mri and it shows hey it still hasn't healed yeah now is that gonna play is that gonna play tricks on your mind and now you're gonna start second guessing your knee i don't know uh i can see that as being the case yeah though so, you want you want to go back onto the field of play
0: not cognitive of yeah. your injury right ultimately and the quicker you can get past that mentally the better um it's not making help yeah. for for me returning to sport still making this uh podcast talking about it <laughs> every week but um yeah for for most people healthy to just get the injury out of the way um return to your sport keep doing your your rehab and bonus if you if your ACL does heal itself because you can't you can't control that as well it's about controlling your controllables um I guess the messages um well yeah at least right now <laughs> yeah at least right now at this point in time and um and in terms of um try to wrap things up really with uh, i certainly learned that the importance of seeing the right physio and hearing both sides of the argument um were really key for me to make the right decision and having faith in the pathway that i chose um if someone's just had an acl um diagnosis the rupture of rupture the acl how important it is for them to see someone that has experience with with treating their specific injury type and getting them experience getting people back to sport in that because the physio sector is a very broad one right and you can see it you can see many physios that um, might have quite limited experience in certain areas and um for someone picking their physio, what? why is it so important that they pick someone with advanced kind of ACL rehab knowledge and experience?
1: Yeah. So, um, I'd say rehabbing an ACL injury, uh, you know, with or without surgery, it, it's tough. And it really is its own separate beast to tackle as far as rehab goes and as far as the the physical therapist goes and so essentially you want to work with someone who has seen a lot of these who has a lot of reps under their belts uh so to speak of helping people get back to the lives they want and get back to the sports that they that they love and so um usually the people who have this experience who who um, have done this a lot. They're usually up to date with all the research. Um, they're using they're using strict criteria to to guide the patients through the different phases of rehab, um, not just going off of time or or their own feel, their own intuition. They're, they're using numbers and data to to guide them, and um, that's kind of how it's it's a separate beast than just you know. Um, a lot of the other different types of, you know, different parts of rehab or, um, you know, shoulder or low back or anything like that. Um, and then you're going to have times when you're, you're frustrated and you're scared and you're not going to know what's going on or, um, you'll be questioning your decision. And so you want someone on your side who, who has seen those, um, Seen those speed bumps in and in, in other people and that they can help guide you along that those those problems that you get that that come up and so uh you yeah, you want someone in your corner who's already dealt with these issues before and can help you navigate them you know i have uh <laughs> i recently just heard this this phrase and uh, it says you don't pay the plumber for banging on the pipe Pay him for knowing where to bang, and I would say this definitely applies to ACL rehab. Yep, exactly. Um, you know, the, the therapist who's seen these a lot knows where the most important parts are to to work on, and uh, and knows how to figure that out so that they can customize the rehab to that that individual in front of them, yep. and so that they can kind of progress them along as. As fast and as safely as possible. Yep. And when you do have those
0: deviations to the, the pathway, or or concerns, or or problems, having that knowledge base there from experience is, is from certainly from my experience, um, really important to have someone that's there to answer those questions for you because you don't want to be go googling them <laughs> and su- yeah. down some rabbit hole. Um, and and yeah exactly why i wanted to get you on alex to to share your knowledge to our to our listeners um who are potentially making that decision for them a lo- along the, the pathway um, i did want to finish i know that was going to be a final question but there's one that we didn't quite cover that i, I thought was really really important part for me and that we semi covered in saying the pathway is going to be defined by um how the patient presents in terms of their um their initial knee structure and supporting um, functions. But um, just in terms of that first few days, and uh, muscle wastage is a huge part of something that you then have to spend months kind of addressing. Are there anything people can do when they first get a diagnosis and maybe they've got to wait? you know, four to four weeks to maybe even three months to see an orthopedic surgeon, if that's if that's the choice they're going to make. Is there any anything they can do in the first kind of few weeks or even days that may reduce the the muscle waste around their knee, any kind of low-risk um, exercise that they can do just to take a bit of control back after getting some pretty yeah. devastating news?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'd say it's not just the the atrophy of the muscle wastage that you're talking about that's Mm. oh I would say it's important I'd say it's also making sure that their range of motion comes back yep and so if you can restore that as soon as possible then that sets you up for better outcomes and um, so first thing I would say is you want to get your your knee extension back so that's your ability to lock out your knee Mm. so there's a couple ways I generally work on that one is like a heel prop so you essentially just lay on your back and prop your, your foot up on a couple pillows so that you're, there's nothing underneath your knee. And so gravity essentially is essentially just pulling it down so it can straighten out. Um, or you can do the same thing sitting in a chair, prop your foot up on another chair or ottoman and just let gravity hang and pull that knee straight. I've seen people
0: put weight uh, as well. Is, is, is that dangerous to go too far to start weighting your, your knee straight? That feels a bit extreme
1: no no you can definitely put weight on there if your knee if it's not painful yeah um usually i mean sometimes early on it can be painful so i would say gravity is good enough but if it's not painful and your knee still isn't um able to fully extend then yeah you can definitely add some weight to it Mm -hmm. so usually you just get like a shopping bag backpack or purse and uh, strap it around your thigh, and then just add some some balls of water, cans of soup, anything, just to start slowly adding some weight. And I usually just have people start out with five minutes at a time, a few times a day, and then um, you can increase that to about 15 minutes at a time, about three times a day, and then, um, again, just making sure it's not hurting and um, but just letting, letting gravity do all the work for you. Then, uh, the next thing is making sure you can bend your knee. And so those are like the heel slides that's laying on your back. Uh, I mean, get like, a a belt or a, a towel, long towel, uh, looping around your foot and pull your slide, try and slide your heel towards your, towards your glute, Um, and then, um, bending your knee as much as you can. Yeah. Uh the other thing the other really thing comfortable uh, Yeah. <laughs> the other thing you can do is actually um lay on the floor on your back and put your your butt up against the wall, um or really close to the wall, and then put your foot up onto the wall. And then you can slide your heel down towards your butt and gravity helps you helps you uh bend your knee as you do that. Mm and same thing just work on it for a few minutes uh, a couple times a day usually around three times a day for about five minutes um and so that's a way to restore your knee flexion and then your knee extension um then as far as your quad goes trying to just wake that up get it going a little bit um the very easy thing you can do is a quad set so that's the line on your back Um, just trying to contract your quadricep and essentially push the back of your knee down towards the down towards the floor. Mm. And it's, it's like you're trying to use your quad to lock out your knee. Um, you can also do that standing up. Um, and then the other thing I like to do as far as the quad goes is if you, easy thing you can do at home is you sit in a chair and, um, pull up to the wall and you're essentially you're going to keep your knee bent to 90 degrees and you're essentially just going to kick into the wall you're not gonna you're kicking your toe into the wall you're not going to be able to move move it obviously but um your your quadriceps is going to be working it's it's essentially mimicking like a knee extension except you're doing it isometrically um sitting in a chair and so essentially it's gonna your quadricep is working like you're gonna to kick your foot out except it's just not moving Mm. and uh, that's that's one of my favorite ones to really get that quad uh working yeah especially early on yeah
0: and do you get people on a exercise bike pretty soon as well
1: yeah I do that as soon as I can yeah um no risk
0: right but maybe start with your seat a bit higher so your your bend isn't doesn't feel uncomfortably extreme
1: yeah yeah raise the seat up so it doesn't yeah so you're not bending your knee quite so much mm. um and then again if you're if it's painful and you and you re, you raise the seat up and you still can't get your foot all the way around then i just rock it back and forth and right. take it back take it forward and back as much as you can again not pushing through pain and then uh eventually you're able to get your foot all the way around for a full revolution and then off you go from there um and i think to me the other thing is just that it starts to feel like you're doing something normal okay. now that your your function is coming back and then your confidence just starts starts going up from there
0: yeah and you can get on the road um get biking once you feel comfortable with that and um mm-hmm. and that makes a huge difference to your mental health going out for a bike ride in the yep. in the sunshine when you've been sat on the couch far too much feeling sorry for (laughs) myself, which is completely understandable and normal but um yeah Uh, yep amazing thank you so much for all that alex um undoubtedly the listeners are going to really benefit from from all that insight and help them make you know the right decision for them and i think the the real great takeaway message is are listen to your body trust your body and um and push your body as it's as it's capable with and um it's definitely possible to get back to the sport, um, whether you have surgery or not.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Thanks for having me on, Tim. I'm glad that you know. I'm glad you're doing this podcast and you're kind of raising awareness for this, um, for being able to choose the non-operative route and you know sharing your story and um, just getting getting word out there and drawing more attention to this. Um, I think to me, I think the important part is that. If you tear your ACL and you don't want to do surgery, it's not weird if you don't want to do surgery. Um, Because I feel like, like we were talking about earlier, you know, United States, Australia, UK, those rates are real high of getting surgery. So it feels like that's just the normal thing. And most people, a lot of people don't want to do surgery, right? It's not fun. It's It's not a good thing to have to go through. There are risks to it. And so, if you, if you don't want to do it, it's no longer weird. It's not, it's no longer, an, um, you know, you're no longer going against the grain and it's okay to to choose to not do that. Yep. Well, I guess you are going against the grain still, but um, just, like, cool you're, you're not alone, though. though. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and surgery should be a yeah, last
0: right. case option, right? Rather than a first instant decision option.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's going to take years before we can get to that point, but maybe with social media, it speeds that up. But, um, yeah, I feel like just as you as the individual person, you don't want to do it. You don't have to. And it's, it's not the weird choice, um, to, to choose the non-operative route. Yep.
0: Yeah. You have a choice and make the right one for you. Not what, um, might be perceived that you have to have to choose because it's definitely not only one option out there cool well thank you very much for your time alex i know it's getting late there in arizona so um hope it's calling (laughs) on for you there and you have a you have a nice
1: evening yeah all right thanks tim you have a good one too cheers take care
0: Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy, and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC, and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Karam. Tune in and enjoy. If you're, if you're, you're caribou, the Karam just, just call Mitchell Tall. Or, or in, in Patterson Lakes, tall. just call Mitchell Tall.
1: Anywhere Bayside, just call Mitchell Tall. Buy a seven house, house. Just, just call Mitchell Top. Mitchell Tall, real estate. Oh yeah, real little real, real estate. estate. We want more. We <laughs> 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 did. We done it. One take.